please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17. We read this text already today. We will not read it again. Just a couple of, we're going to, I'm going to jump right into the sermon, so I'm asking you to like be ready to go um, because uh, there's a lot here that I want to talk about today that God brings us through his word. Just a, a brief uh, a note. Um, one of the things about being committed to expositional, systematic expositional preaching of the word of God is that you, you come to texts and sometimes you're like, okay, so what's, first of all, what's the big deal about this text? Is it even it really, it seems kind of strange to our ears or the way we think through things, especially Old Testament texts in Genesis. And then the reality that it is, that it is something that God not only has something, perhaps you might say, buried in the text, but something that we just don't really talk about, perhaps, but might be quite significant. There is probably nothing more significant to a Israeli, to a Jewish person, especially through the Old Testament in the, in, through the Old Testament, than the right, the religious right of circumcision. So important and significant is this to uh, Judaism, which is what the Old Testament is speaking to us concerning, that it became synonymous with being a Jew. They called themselves the circumcised. Why was it so significant? Why was it so important? Why such a big deal? That's a really good question and one we want to examine today. Uh, not only does the religious ritual of Judaism of circumcision have a great significance to the Jewish person, but it becomes a, becomes a primary biblical theme, a theological theme. Why is that? that that's unique and interesting. So Genesis 17 is where we read and we learn of the religious ritual called circumcision. There's a lot of other stuff in this text, really important theological, practical things. So this, this is going to be part one and part two. I know you don't want to stay here for the next three or four hours. So we're, we're going to divide it up and not going to do it all today. And so today, the emphasis will be, first of all, understanding the context of this text, and then looking at and building a biblical theology of the religious rite of circumcision and its spiritual implications. And then, uh, next week, we'll sort of fill in all the rest of the details in this chapter that we just are going to brush over this time. So, this, I'm going to need some prayer today. This is, a, this is an interesting and sort of uh, convoluted topic, and you're going to need some prayer too. So, let's start that way. Father, I pray that you would help us as we come to your text, to your holy word, that we would hear what it has to say, that we'd be encouraged by Christ in it, that there would be hope in in Jesus that comes from this Genesis 17. I pray for your mercy and your grace in our lives today. Please, Holy Spirit, take this word and make it useful to your people. Make it something that changes them, that transforms them by the renewing of their mind. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's been a little bit of a break. We've had about a month off since we were in Genesis. So just a brief uh, recap here. Abraham, called Abram, is the covenant individual that God has promised that he would bring uh, land, seed, and blessing. Make him great, that he would give him offspring, particularly a seed, an offspring in which all nations would be blessed. Speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, and then there would be a land which, with which these blessed people would inhabit, would occupy. He's repeated this promise to Abraham on several occasions. He's demonstrated it to him with, with religious rituals. He's done all sorts of things. This promise has withstood Abraham's faithlessness, Abraham and Sarah's plotting and scheming, a famine, invading armies, all these sort of things. It's, it's still intact. And now we get to chapter 17, and what we find here is that God is repeating and confirming the promise to Abraham. He's confirming it um, really one last time. The text shifts. Genesis shifts 
from here on. Instead of more, it's the promise is coming, the promise is coming, the promise is coming, we find the promise comes, at least in seed format, at least in, in a germ sort of way. In fact, um, the speeches of God that we've looked at often through Genesis, when God's coming, the Lord appears and he says certain things, begins to diminish. And we see fulfillment take place. This is a watershed text. It's also, and for those of you that understand sort of my, that I get a little bit uh, giddy when we look at uh, Hebrew language stuff, it's also considered to be one of the finest Hebrew examples of poetry. Um, A guy named Westerman, a a long, very detailed uh, language guy, said that this chapter, carefully thought out to its finest details, is an artistic composition by Moses. Um, Wenham says the chapter is the watershed in the Abraham story. The promise has been unfolded bit by bit, gradually building up and becoming more detailed and precise until here they're repeated and filled out in a glorious crescendo and a long and elaborate divine speech. What do I mean by it's a masterpiece? Remember we talked about how the, the Hebrews would layer things and have all sorts of sort of ways of writing and the tone of the text and that, that we just don't do as much in English. And that's what you have here. In fact, you could out, it can be outlined many different ways and they overlap and you pick this page up and you see another way of looking at it and you pick this page up and you see another way of looking at it. That's the way Moses wrote this and penned this text by the Holy Spirit. It, it seems very intentional that Moses is trying to get the attention of his Hebrew readers. This is the watershed text. This is the big one. So you could actually outline it. We read it earlier. You might have noticed God comes and he gives a covenant to Abraham, reminds him of the covenant, and then he gives him the sign of the covenant in 17, 9 through 14. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And then he comes and he gives the covenant to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And then the sign of the covenant, circumcision, takes place. And so you have that sort of parallel ideas. But then you could also do it this way. There's a progressiveness through this way in the text. Yahweh intention concerning Abraham's progeny. I'm going to bring you a, bring you a seed. Abraham falls on his face. He's renamed from Abram to Abraham, father of nations. And then God promises him, I will carry out my covenant forever. And then he gives him the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Then he starts all over again in parallel form. I will bless Sarah with progeny. Abraham falls on his face again. Now Sarah is the mother of Isaac, and her name is changed, just like Abraham's was. And then God promises to carry out his covenant through Sarah forever. And then the sign of the covenant is enacted. You see, it's sort of like progressively parallel. And yet there's another way that Moses, there's actually several more, but one last way I will share with you that Moses does. And that's the old classic chiasm we've talked about, where things kind of build in the middle. And this is five different speeches that God gives through this text. Starts out with an age marker. Abraham's 99 years old, and guess what? The text ends with this age marker. Abraham was 99 years old. And then the first speech in Abraham's humility, where God comes and speaks to him, and Abraham falls on his face in humility. Then God gives a second speech to Abraham, in which he changes his name. The third speech is the significant speech, and that's where he gives the sign of the covenant, circumcision. But do you notice the parallelism in the text? He gives a fourth speech, and this time, instead of changing Sarah's name, Abraham's name, he changes Sarah's name. There's a fifth speech, and Abraham falls on his face with humility. And then we have the marker. He's 99 years old. (laughs) And so you just see this sort of like, this, this chiastic structure where you're seeing this Moses is interweaving with these layers, this masterpiece of Hebrew literature. Now, all that is just to sort of get you thinking, because we can't go into all those sort of details. But in every situation, everything that we see in this text, like neon lights and flashing arrows, the point of the text is, point, is, is zeroing in on the sign of the covenant. It's pointing to this unique 
strange religious ritual called circumcision. This is why the Hebrew people valued circumcision so much and even made their identity the circumcised. They got what Moses was doing here. They understood what was happening. And that was, they're saying, this is important. This is quite significant. So that's what we want to do today. Why? Why was it significant? Why was it important? What was God doing with this? Why give this ritual of circumcision? I want to review the story very quickly with you to point out a couple of things. One, when God comes in chapter 17 to give the uh, promise again to Abraham, he is repeating the covenant promises he's already made in chapter 12, in chapter 13, in chapter 14, and so on, 15. He's repeating. It's not new. Notice here he says, I will multiply you exceedingly. That's the many generations, right? The, the blessing. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make nations out of you. Kings shall come from you. That's make your name great, right? I give to you and your descendants, or that's the word seed, offspring. After you, the land in which you are stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. A couple of differences, or maybe perhaps should say emphasis in this chapter 17 as related in comparison to the other chapters is this is the most extensive description of the covenant promise. Here he goes beyond simply saying, I'll make your name great and tells him how he will make his name great. He goes beyond saying, I'll just give you seed and says, kings shall come, nations shall come. So more extensive. And this is the first time he gets very explicit. Instead of saying this land or the land, he says the land of Canaan. So he's being very expressive and very explicit in the promises. But it's the same promises. Of course, as we read the text earlier, Abraham is immediately filled with humility, like God appearing to him and telling him these things. He falls on his face. And then God changes his name from exalted father, Abram, to father of many, Abraham. So then God tells him, all right, now, and this is significant in verse 9, you shall keep my covenant and the descendants after you throughout their generations. Now, wait a second. Up to this point, we've been very clear, and the text has been very clear, that this was all of God and nothing that Abraham had to do, right? He just receives it. So is God changing the rules now? Is he saying, no, 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 wait, wait, I, gotta, I changed my mind. I do want you to do something in order to get the covenant. Is that what he means by keep my covenant? Is he adding a work to Abraham's faith? Is he telling me you have to do something to get something from me? And if you've been at grace any length of time, you know that the immediate answer to that is no. This is a covenant of grace. It is completely based upon God's generosity and mercy, not on our work, Abraham's work at all. So then what does he mean by keep my covenant? Well, the phrase keep my covenant, or even that word in the Hebrew there is unique. And it, the, the, the word tishmar means, um, does not mean to obey or to be faithful. It means to remember, to receive, to accept. In other words, what we already learned of Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Keep my covenant is him simply saying, receive this. Believe it. It's yours. But there is something he wants him to do. Not to gain God's covenant promises, but because he has received them, he says, now I want you to mark yourselves and your descendants as the covenant people. I want you to put a visible, physical mark on yourself that is going to remind you, it's going to be a sign, a symbol, it's going to remind you that I will give you the covenant. So it's not an act or a religious rite that Abraham and his descendants will need to do in order to deserve or gain the covenant, but it's a mark a reminder, a symbolic, physical expression that says you have the covenant. It's yours. That's the idea there. 
to receive by faith and thus observe, observe with visible sign that God is faithful in all his word. And so this circumcision, which we're going to look at in a biblical theological way, is the evidence, the sign to Abraham that God is faithful to keep his word. It's not the work that Abraham must do to get God to do something. Well, this this kind of jolts Abraham. Okay, (laughs) everyone even, I mean, even your foreign-born slaves, everybody in the household, every male child is going to get this sign, this symbol. But Abraham doesn't seem too phased by it, but then he seems quite phased when God says, and Sarah, your wife, she's going to have the, fulfilled the promise of having the seed, the offspring that I told you all along. But that's too much for Abraham. He laughs, and he falls on his face. Fell on his face in humility, falls on his face in laughter. He, and, and we'll get to this next week, but he yitzaks, that's the Hebrew word for laugh, and God hears him laugh, and he says, oh, no, no, Abraham. He doesn't rebuke him. He says, uh, this is going to happen to Sarah. In fact, you can just name her Sarah, which means princess. You just name her that. Um, and you laughed? Guess what you're going to name your son? Laughter. That's what you'll name him. That's what Isaac means, laughter, Yitzhak. You're going to name him laughter. And it's going to happen. And Abraham says, Ishmael's already born. He's 13. I mean, I know it wasn't through Sarah. I know it was sort of our mistake, but, but can't he stand before you as the promise? No, he's illegitimate, Abraham. It's not what I had planned all along. My way is the right way. And so, no, it's going to happen this way. Don't worry. I care for Ishmael. He's going to be great, too. He's going to have 12 princes that are going to, you know, coming from him. He's going to be amazing, kind of even mirror his eventual half brother in the number of princes that are going to come through him. But, but it's through Sarah. Now Abraham is like, okay, this is mind-blowing, mind-numbing, and it says twice in the text, that very same day, Abraham's like, let's circumcise every male. We believe this. We be- I believe the promises, and we're going to do this. And then you have the end of the story. That's the way it ends with Abraham's obedience. So as I said, last, ne- next week we will jump into some of the more details regarding this, uh, the laughter, the naming of Isaac, the changing of Abraham's name and Sarah's name and Ishmael and all those sort of things. We'll look at that more next week. But I want to kind of, it's going to be a little different. We're going to be jumping in some different texts of Scripture. But I want us to think through, if this is so important, if this is so significant that the people of God, the nation of Israel, labeled themselves the circumcised based on Genesis 17, and if it has theological importance that God would say, this, is, this day you must do this, then what's it all about? Um, first of all, uh, just because I think it's important, Let me just briefly and quickly define the Jewish circumcision, what God was giving in that day. It is the cutting away of the foreskin around the male's penis, a quite safe and relatively low-impact cosmetic procedure. Okay, Sometimes I know because it's a a sensitive uh, part of the body, the reproductive organs, it's sensitive. We think about the issues like, ooh, that's sort of things we don't want to think about. And sometimes I think we we sort of miss it because we want to dance around an issue. Um, there's no reason for that. But understand that this is not a mutilation any more than an ear piercing is a mutilation or a tattoo is a mutilation. It's a cosmetic procedure that in that day even was relatively safe and did not affect a procreation, did not affect, have an impact in sexual pleasure, any of that. But did you know that other people in the time before this even happened other cultures were circumcising their children? Did you know that? I mean, I often think that circumcision begins with the Jews. It's the Jewish thing. But it wasn't. In fact, history and archaeology shows that many cultures practice some form of circumcision and still do to this day for different reasons. Uh, Wenham says only in Europe 
and Central and East Asia is the custom of some sort of, un, of circumcision uh, unknown. In other words, he's saying m- most of Africa, most of the Middle East, uh, most of, and we even have in, in the Americas, evidences of early circumcision, some of the ancient peoples there, um, th- this was some sort of circumcision, it was a common practice. In fact, uh, several of Abraham's neighbors, the Canaanites, several of them practiced circumcision in that day, according to records, before Abraham did. The most common and largest milieu in which Abraham comes from, right? What's the big nation? What's the big people group during Abraham's time, kind of like the mighty people? It's the Egyptians, right? Abraham is quite connected with Egypt. Um, first, his, half, his son Ishmael is half Egyptian, and he went down to Egypt to escape things. Um, Egypt practiced a form of circumcision before this. Now, this sort of surprised me, and, and it might disturb some people because they say, why would God use something or take something, or why would, why would something be ha- and give it, but it's already happening? Like, it, that's weird. Why would God do that? We don't know a lot of the reasons why things happen. The Genesis just sort of comes at it with it just happening. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us all the details. Um, however, the Egyptian circumcision was different than the, what became the Jewish circumcision, what God commanded to Abraham here. First of all, it was a partial circumcision. It was just a portion of the foreskin that was cut off. And secondly, and this I think is most significant, it was for the priestly class of males who would serve in Pharaoh's court. So not everyone, just that small group, that group of priestly males. Now that's interesting because obviously then it was a religious rite for the Egyptians. It wasn't a fertility rite or some sort of pagan puberty rite or some, and other cultures did it for that reason. Other cultures had different forms of circumcision, some for marriage rites, some even for possible health reasons. It's it's a very, it's very interesting and I, I did a little bit of a dive into the archaeology and history of it. And I was sort of like, oh, wow, this is a really big subject that a lot of people, like historians, write lots of stuff on. And a lot of, as you would know, if you're in that, if that ever happens, a lot of debates, right, about, well, why this and why that? And, but it was very widely practiced, but it was different. And this, so this is similar to the Jewish circumcision, and it's the religious rite. But different in that is big evidence in the text that every male child, right, in Israel, is not just the priestly class, and a complete circumcision, not a partial circumcision. Now, another difference, by the way, is that to the Egyptians, it was between the age of 9 and 14 that they did this. Um, the Hebrew, it was the eighth day, made very clearly, the infant eight days old. So there's some differences. And my point is, is this, is we might have a problem and say if... Um, is it a problem that God would give a religious ritual to Abraham that so closely resembled the pagan ritual the Egyptians were doing? And the answer to that, of course, I think is no. First of all, if pagan people use something for religious purposes, it doesn't automatically condemn what they use. Right? It doesn't mean that, that, that that's the case. There are several instances in not just culture, but the scripture where, where God even takes something that is a common thing in the culture and redeems it or uses it for his particular purposes. But secondly, in that sense, um, God does that regularly. So for example, now this isn't a pagan form of worship, but another major sign that God gave, a sign of the covenant, is the rainbow. So we we recognize that a rainbow comes from the bending of light in water droplets, right? So that was present at the flood before God gave it as his covenant sign. You know, bending water, bending light was present in creation. It's a natural element, a natural thing. But God takes something that is commonly seen or maybe commonly used in the bending of light and gives it a religious or a spiritual significance. Or the bread and wine in communion, things that have natural use that even uh, pagans use for their religious rituals, 
but has a redeemed or spiritual use in it. So I don't think there's a problem here. Essentially, Abraham is not adopting an Egyptian practice, but receiving a new and better form of circumcision by divine decree. And that's what's happening here. So that's sort of where it comes from. What does it mean? Why did God give this to Abraham here? What's going on with this? The first, and there's, I think there's actually three particular reasons, I believe, from this text that we could mine out and see what the significance of the sign of circumcision was. First, the intention was to prove or to demonstrate that God is sovereign over seed. Multiple promises, right? The heart of the covenant that God gives, the heart of the promise is the offspring of Abraham, right? The seed that would come through him, the offspring that would come through him, the progeny that would come through him that would then be the messianic fulfillment in the seed of of Mary, the Holy Spirit who implants that in there. So the idea of an offspring, a seed, one who would come. This is the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. The land, that's a place for the offspring to live. The blessing or the greatness, that's because of the seed will bring that. So the heart of the whole thing is this offspring or this seed, which apparently is impossible. He's 100 years old, or approximately as he says, and Sarah's 90 years old. It's impossible. Look in chapter 17, verse 1, and see how God first appears to Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. This is the first time in the Hebrew Scripture that one of the, one of the most important and significant compound names of God is mentioned. In the Hebrew, Almighty God is El Shaddai. We don't really know where Shaddai comes from. It's actually an old Akkadian word before it predates Hebrew. It might mean the God from the mountain, and the idea is the one who is on his throne, the big, the strong. The translation Almighty comes from the Greek Septuagint. And that meaning of almighty in the Greek word is the one who constrains nature. This this word Shaddai is found, referring to God, is found 48 times in the Old Testament. 31 of those times, it's found in the book of Job, where God says, I'm almighty, almighty, almighty. Every time it's found in Genesis... El Shaddai is found in Genesis. It references children. It references offspring. It references fruitfulness and seed every time. Because the word means omnipotent, all-powerful. So it's no accident that God introduces himself to Abraham as the one who has every power to the man who at 99 years old is feeling quite powerless and to his wife at 90 who is powerless to have children. And so he comes to him and he says, I am the all-powerful one. I have every power. In ancient culture, the power to procreate was not just significant, but it was life and survival. We have all sorts of benefits today. We have all sorts of blessings. Retirement. We have warm houses. We have people who can, you know, like we have, we have social security, we have all sorts of things like that. Who's going to take care of you in the ancient world when you're a hundred years old and you have no children? Who's going to do that? 
It was survival, which is, by the way, we've talked about this with the issue of Hagar um, and Abraham and the reason like, why Sarah wanted a seed so bad. It's, it's the reputation. It's why there was such an idol over having children in that day because it was life. You lived because of your procreation, because of your children. You lived because of your progeny. You died without them. And God has been promising for nearly a quarter of a century to Abraham and to Sarah that he would give them that child, that seed. And it hasn't happened. And now it's too late. But God's never late. And so he comes to Abraham and he says, I have the power. I am the all-powerful one. And so God, I believe this is the whole point of it, the first main one, main reason for circumcision. God says, I want you to mark, mark yourself with the reminder that I have the power over your procreation. I have the power over your progeny. I have the power over your body. They already tried the power in their own strength. They schemed about how they were going to make an offspring. And God is reminding them, no. And you see, circumcision becomes a sign that God is sovereign over the promise of seed, which of course means that God is sovereign over the fulfillment of the Christ that would come through Abraham, Sarah, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, and so on, and so on, and so on. Sovereign over seed. Circumcision was a symbolic reminder that vitality, virility, life itself is under the power and authority of El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Number one, God is sovereign over seed. Another sign of circumcision is that God is then forming a covenant community. See, circumcision was not primarily indicative of an individual's faith in God's word. True of Abraham, but how do I know that's not true of the sign of circumcision? As whole people will say, well, you know, they, even, even many scholars I was reading say, oh, they had to also believe. You had to believe. Circumcision is just an external sign. You had to believe. So then why does he circumcise and God command to circumcise an infant in the eighth day? How much faith does an infant on the eighth day have? How much understanding do they have of God and who he is? So the sign of circumcision in its original form given to Abraham was not you know, to, to the evidence that one individually believed. No, that, that wasn't it. So what is it doing? What is, the, what is the point if that's not the point? Well, he says in verse 13, in kind of in a negative sense, the uncircumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. See, the emphasis of circumcision throughout this text is first that God is sovereign, but second that you're creating a group. He, he doesn't just say, Abraham, you do it. He says, all the male in your house and everyone who comes from there and everyone after that. Some ask, why, why only the male children? Well, first of all, that's the definition of circumcision. It's very practical. Um, but another reason for that, in the ancient culture, cultures, uh, the female were connected through the male. I, what I mean by that is that either a, a daughter or a wife, the idea that the sign or the symbol would come on the head of the household and that the, the household then is blessed by that. That's the simple uh, the theological reason. It's also interesting, isn't it, that some who don't receive the blessings of God's promises are still commanded to be circumcised? Ishmael? He's not the one. God just said it's not going to come through him, but he still needs to be circumcised. And, and Esau, Jacob's brother, Abraham's grandchild, he, he would be circumcised, and yet he doesn't believe. He's not part of the covenant. You see, it was a connection not only to, a reminder not only of God's sovereignty, it was a connection to Abraham. Abraham. 
is a connection to the family. One of the purposes of circumcision thus was to create an exemplary community for God to display His power, grace, provision, law, ordinances, justice. To create a people, a nation, marked out, chosen, determined to show the law and the promises of God. Some members are insincere, but still present physically. As I mentioned, like Esau. But the bigger picture here and what's happening is that this community will produce and protect the capital S seed. This community will produce the Messiah and they'll be marked out for that who will then create an even bigger family. So one, God is sovereign over seed. Two, God is forming a covenant community. And three, and this is... I think one of the main aspects here of what we see with circumcision, it's a sign or a visible symbol that God is worthy of full devotion. There is, this is, goes back to the other nations that practiced circumcision. So Abraham was certainly very well aware of the Egyptian circumcision and the rites. I mean, there's a good possibility that several in his household were circumcised as Egyptians. Remember how Pharaoh gave many from his court to Abraham when he was down there? Um, Abraham was very well aware of this. And I think what thing that God is doing here is he's saying, Abraham, this is how the world worships, but this is how you do it. You remember the Egyptians, their circumcision was only the priestly class. But... Abraham was all males. Perhaps this is foreshadowing Exodus 19.6, where God will say to the nation of Israel, you all are kings and priests before me. In other words, not a class, but all of God's people were devoted or priests unto the Lord. And he says, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That word holy could be also be described as devoted. The quintessential element of holiness is devotion, loyalty, devotion, unreserved devotion. The Egyptians practiced a partial circumcision, and I think there is a symbolic element in incomplete devotion. But God said, no, all the males, all of you, the nation, you'll practice a complete circumcision because you're to be wholly devoted as my priests. You're mine. Genesis 17.1, when he introduces himself, he says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Blameless, tamim, whole, sincere, complete, perfect, fully devoted and loyal to Yahweh. John Mead said this, the sign of circumcision was intended to show devotion to the service of Yahweh and His kingdom. It was intended to show devotion, complete devotion. So this really, something that seems a little bit on the surface, a little bit distasteful in one of those parts of the Bible that we go, oh, well, you know, let's, let's kind of not talk about that part. It's a, it's a little uncomfortable. Actually, when, when you study, you get into it, you're saying, wow, this is actually quite... Quite a beautiful expression of God's sovereignty, His covenant community that He's forming, and His full devotion that He intends for His covenant people to be devoted to. But many years later, one of the prophets of Israel reminds us that there's a problem with circumcision. In fact, it's a problem with every physical sign. Jeremiah says this, Yet they, the circumcised covenant family intended to be fully devoted to the Lord, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts. You can pass on a sign 
but not a heart. You can mark a physical part of your body, but not the heart. And the problem is, the external sign of circumcision didn't do anything in here. But signs are always meant to point towards something deeper, better, spiritual. You see, circumcision in the body was always meant to point toward circumcision of the heart. That was always its intention. It was always meant to teach that. As the New, Te New Testament will say, a circumcision not made with hands. Something not physical, something spiritual, something internal, something real. The book of Deuteronomy actually helps us think through this a little bit. So Deuteronomy, as you know, is the last book in the Torah, the last book in the law. So Genesis is the first one, this is the last one. Twice in the book of Deuteronomy, the word circumcision is used. Only twice in the entire part of the law. Seeing those two uses, I think, is really helpful in understanding what the intent of physical circumcision was always about. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 10, the first times it's used. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul, devoted, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, El Shaddai. Also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, gave covenants to them, and He chose their descendants after them. That sound a little bit like Genesis 17? You above all peoples, as it is this day, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Be stiff-necked no longer. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, when I gave the ritual of circumcision to your fathers, it wasn't just so that you could do a physical thing. It wasn't just so that you could, could say, oh, I did it. I checked that off my box. We, we, we're very good people. We Eighth day, our kids get circumcised. We do all the things. He says, that's never the intent. The intent was always for you to have a circumcised heart. And so he says, so circumcise your heart. So cut away the flesh of your heart. Be devoted to me. Walk in my ways. That's the beginning of Deuteronomy. What's fascinating is the second and final time the word circumcise is used in Deuteronomy, it's very different. Deuteronomy 30, which is the last couple, few chapters in Deuteronomy. After the law has been given a second time, Deuteronomy was called a vassal treaty. That is the idea that the superior and the greater, God is the superior. He gives a, rules or the law to the, to the lesser. And as long as they will follow his laws, then he'll provide provision and protection. The vassal, like the king to the subjects. So he says, circumcise your hearts. And then, now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, <laughs> the curse because they are not going to obey, which I have set before you, when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, if we were to read all of Deuteronomy, we'd see why is he driving them to the nations? Because they will not devote themselves to the Lord. And you return to the Lord with your, with your God and obey his voice according to all that I commanded you, you and your children, your seed, with all your heart and with all your soul. Sounds like Deuteronomy 10, right? He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So you know what happens between the first part of Deuteronomy and the second part of Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy? Reality. That's what hits. Circumcise your hearts. Okay, Oh, 
and I failed again, and I didn't obey him again, and I messed up again, and I sinned again, and I sinned again. So you know what happens in Deuteronomy 30? Okay, I will circumcise your hearts. You can't do it. You won't do it. You won't be fully devoted to me. I will have to do it so that you can be fully devoted to me. Do you ever wonder if the gospel of grace is found in the Old Testament? Regeneration in the Old Testament? This is what Jesus meant when he was talking to Nicodemus. He says, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't get this whole born again thing. It's like it's right there in Deuteronomy. I will circumcise your heart so that you can live again, be born again. <laughs> it's right there. The problem is evil hearts. The problem is external signs don't change the heart. Okay, here's the solution. Change your heart. Uh, I tried, and sometimes I didn't try. Okay, better solution. I will change your heart. Bring on Ezekiel 36 then. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Doesn't that sound like Deuteronomy 30? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will cut away the hardness. I will cut away. I will circumcise your heart, and you will have a new one. And so if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. The in, in external expression will give way to internal reality when God circumcises the heart. See, circumcision was always meant to be a sign, merely a sign to point towards spiritual circumcision. And thus, spiritual, whereas Physical circumcision intends or signs God's sovereignty over seed. Spiritual circumcision accomplishes sovereignly empowering to give eternal life. Eternal seed, life. Whereas physical circumcision brought together a physical community, spiritual circumcision builds a forever covenant community of everyone who bears a physical mark or doesn't. Whereas physical circumcision pointed toward the need for devotion to the Lord, spiritual circumcision accomplishes that and makes his people fully devoted to him. The sign, what it's pointing toward, the heart. Ambrose, the theologian of the fourth century, so pretty long time ago, he said this, Bodily circumcision is a sign of spiritual circumcision. Therefore, the sign remained until the truth arrived. The Lord Jesus arrived. He who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because he circumcises the whole person in truth. Not a minor bodily member in sign. He abolished the sign. He installed the truth. Because that which is perfect has arrived, that which was partial was accomplished. Move to the New Testament. Paul the Apostle understands this because of God's grace. And he says this in Romans 2, 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. Not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. He's saying, listen, all along God's intention was not to be merely a physical Jew. It was to be spiritually enriched as God's people. Philippians 3.3, 3, he further says, Paul does, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That's in the external sign. The sign is meaningless when the truth arrives. In Colossians 2, Paul says this, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, or that literally means by how Christ circumcised your hearts, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, he has made alive together with him, gave, so you may live, Deuteronomy said, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We're out of time. Did you know there are two signs that the church has? We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. Those are signs that God gave, symbols. They're not, they don't point back to circumcision in the Old Testament. They point toward the circumcision of the heart. That would be another study altogether. But just think for a moment as I, as I talk through this very briefly, how when we practice a baptism or we practice communion every month, how this points toward the circumcision of the heart. Just think about that for a moment. Because we come once again full circle. The spiritual signs now intention. So we had the physical sign circumcision, its intention. Its intention was God is sovereign over seed. He's building a forever community or building a, a covenant community in the nation and intention that he wants us to be fully devoted to him. Spiritual circumcision. Spiritual circumcision accomplishes that very thing. It gives us the power of endless life. It puts us into the forever community and it makes us able, it accomplishes able to be fully devoted to him. So what do the signs do that we have? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They point then to Christ, who is the power of endless life. They point to Christ, the creator of the forever community. They point to Christ, who is worthy of our full loyalty and devotion. So every time we take of the communion, it's a sign we're pointing toward the circumcision of the heart that Christ accomplishes. Christ alone, Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon wrote a communion hymn amidst us our beloved stands and I'll say this in closing one of the verses says if now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs but see not him oh may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face see the signs See the symbols, see the illustrations, and look to Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see Christ. Help us to understand this um, ritual, this symbol that was practiced.